Welcome. Today we're interviewing Jürgen Vick Nukstorp, the executive chairman of the Lego Brands Group and a member also of the IMD Foundation Board. Jürgen, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Over the next 45 minutes, we're going to discuss, we're going to discuss Lego, of course, and, 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 and Lego today. But I also want to take you back because next year will be for you 20 years at Lego. Uh, many of them, of course, at the head of Lego, but you, you joined Lego relatively young after having started your career as a, as a kindergarten teacher and then starting an academic career at Aarhus Business School and then a few years at McKinsey. And so you joined Lego in 2001, yeah. become CEO in 2004, the first non-family member at a time where the company is already an iconic company, but is not doing well. Mm. And over the next 13 years, your tenure was remarkably successful. I think sales increased 600%, uh, profits increased enormously, and, and Lego also became the largest toy company in the world. Mm. Tell us a little bit about how it felt and, and how it was to take over this company at that, again, relatively young age and with a lot of pressure, and, and then also some of the things that, that helped you to turn around the company. Mm. So the company was, when I arrived, a very happy, enthusiastic company, but it was not at all performing, but it didn't really know because there was no balance sheet really consolidated for management. There was no measure of value creation or customer satisfaction or engagement. And results had been a bit up and down, but overall the company had grown for almost 70 years organically and very rarely producing a loss. And it was family owned, so there was no listed stock price. So there was no real sense that things were terribly wrong, but at the same time, a sense that perhaps they weren't that great. And in fact, one of the first things I did was to put together a paper that was sort of like a 360 view of the enterprise and presenting an outlook for the company and an analysis of its real underlying performance. And I was a very naive young man. I presented this to, to the board and to the owner, and I got kicked out of the boardroom, of course. And I remember the, the chairman being good enough to say, let's not shoot the messenger, but can you please leave? <laughs> and so uh, I left, and I thought that was the end of a very nice time in, a, in an absolutely wonderful company. But of course, uh, the board came back and said, can you help us uh, take this business forward in a different way? Wow. And, and, and so a number of times you have recounted what happened. Can you, just for us, maybe identify one or two of the key pillars of this turnaround? Because it was so. Maybe turnaround is, is exaggerated in the sense that the company was not doing too badly. But, but clearly, there was, you took a company that, that, that was maybe a sleeping beauty and, and you turned it into a juggernaut over the following 13 years. One or two key aspects of, of sure. this. Actually, the, the, the beginning of the crisis that, that uh, sort of was in the public domain really started in 2003, where we realized the top line was dropping by more than 30%. So there was almost a moment of sort of technically uh, going bankrupt in a sense, or at least getting into a major refinancing. So it was uh, a turnaround. It, it was eventually okay. a turnaround. But I think, and there, you know, my situation from a personal leadership perspective was, as you said, I was very young, I was very inexperienced, I was very naive. And so I leaned very much on the organization and on customers and said, what should I do? And in fact, also the legal professor, Xavier Silbert at IMD became a mentor for me and really was very helpful to me just saying, 
here's what I think you need to do. And, and it turned out to me that sort of the generic of a turnaround really is stabilize the situation. Secondly, restore productivity. Number three, return to growth. And so in a way, the analogy is of an accident happening in a, you know, a road accident, you know, stop the bleeding, stop the engine from driving. Then you take the patient to the hospital and stabilize it. And then you go into retraining. You can't really compete at the Olympics, but once you've then recreated the athletic engine, you recovered as a patient, then you're ready to go out in the market and compete again. And I think one of the huge advantages of the private ownership and for the legal company as such was to be able to actually spend the better part of five years in those first two phases of stabilizing the situation and restoring productivity. And then about five, six years in, releasing the engines and returning to growth, which then became a staggering period of growth of more than 10 years of plus 15% compounded annual organic growth rate. So a certain amount of patience from the family and so from the shareholders, meaning a certain amount of reinvestment. Uh, so one of the things that I think goes back to this period is an enormous amount of innovation coming up with new products. You also, I think, have spoken about paradoxical leadership. Can you comment both on the innovation and also on this notion of paradoxical leadership? So the first thing we did was to really establish a benchmark of innovation uh, by looking at what we ought to be able to do. And that meant really thinking about delivering a model that made our customers successful. In that case, that would be the retailer. So how do we innovate in a way that's exciting for the retailer, but driven what I'd call a front-wheel driven car? That means it starts with the end consumer, the family and the child. What is it they would recommend? At that time, it turned out to be the major driver of that is what you'd call schoolyard currency. That means, do you talk about our product to somebody else? Now, of course, today, that's social media. Nobody goes to the schoolyard anymore. They use their, their devices to do that. And the way to really measure that is something like net promoter score. So we made that the king proxy of the recovery. Can we bring our products to be so exciting that they get recommended by everybody? Turns out, the founder of the company said, I really don't like selling and marketing. He said that back in 55. I would like to make a product of such high distinction that people talk about it to other people. So for me, it was going back to the roots of what the company had always been about, but instilling that in the innovation engine. And that then led us into really mapping, you know, how do children play? What categories of play exist? How can we be relevant? How do we make it exciting? How do we make it learning through play? And we used a lot of ethnographic studies to that. So we sent designers living with households in Boston, in Germany, in China, to try and make a proposition. So for instance, we had never really experienced a breakthrough in products that are particularly relevant for the younger girls. And so we had designers living in places like Beijing, Boston, Berlin, in household, in the girls' bedroom, understanding how they think, what they're interested in, really mapping the world of how girls interact and play. And out of that came a product line called Lego Friends, which we launched in as late as 2011 and is a phenomenal success uh, even today, 10 years later. So an innovation process rooted in really understanding the final consumer. And of course, we all know that when you ask consumer what they want, very often they don't know. So, so here you're really emphasizing we studied and from there we inferred and we imagined. Yes. Um, now, Paradoxical leadership. 
So uh, I really love that thing because I think uh, leadership is too complex and it's more of a practice than it can be distilled into always focus, always execute. There is a balancing act. And so one of the things we spoke about is it is important we have an identity and we're proud of who we are and what we stand for as a brand. But at the same time, we need to be the humblest in taking in a challenge to that. So we need to be better at executing than strategizing. But at the end of the day, we're a global company that only survive on our capability base. So we've got to be strong on strategy as well. There are distinctive choices that will make a huge difference for our company. We need to be focused on that everybody is getting along and living in an environment of, of trust and collaboration. But at the same time, we got to be good at being demanding and taking conflicts because if we become a consensus-driven culture, we'll never really get the confrontations that make us better. So it was developed into a list of 10, 15 things. We said, here are actually some paradoxes that we're trying to find a balance. And it's not a question of being either or. It's knowing okay. when to dose, both. Uh, doing yeah. both of those things. Okay, so, so basically saying, and, and I think this is something we truly still recognize today, that world-class performance today is very rarely just this thing. There's, there's very often, as you said, we need to be performance-driven and we need to be caring and we need to be empowering and decisive. And so it was already this, this notion that very often we need to be able to do two things that are not completely obvious to reconcile. And, and in a sense, it's like when you look at a piano, black and white, you know, it's a finely tuned piano when, you know, we all know there are situations where we need to be more directive and other situations where we need to be a bit more empowering and just setting out a broader direction. It's very easy to characterize it theoretically that one is the situation where people are more unsure and uncertain and what to do. But sometimes you don't know. You don't know you're in that situation. So you need that mental flexibility and model that allows you to suddenly shift from being quite open-minded to being very directive because that's what's uh, required in, in, in the situation. So in sometimes it's an issue of end, but sometimes it's also an issue of being able to flex between one style and another. The mental flexibility, exactly. In 2017, you sometimes people step down from the CEO position. I guess you stepped up to become executive chairman of the Lego Brands Group. And of course, today, the Lego Brands, the Lego Group is, is, is a complex, is a large and complex and heterogeneous set of components. And one of the challenges with these organizations is how do we make the whole more than the sum of the parts? Mm. So how do you and, and the board and, and the leadership teams ensure that the whole is more than the sum of the parts? What we decided to do was to have a completely different structure. So we took the point of view that we operate from a family owner level, and I'm now sitting alongside at the owner and holding an investment uh, level. So we allocate capital and we set high level strategies and focus on the hiring and retention and development of the CEOs and board members. But we don't require the different legal entities to act as if they're part of one corporation. Instead, we use the word, which I think is a bit abuse today, ecosystem. But I like the word because to me, it gives the understanding not of a well-manicured garden, but more like a forest, where we recognize there are big trees and small trees, and there are some that are very embryonic and some in the venture area, and there are some that are very well established, like an old oak tree that gives energy and power to the rest of the ecosystem. And in that notion, 
every Lego entity actually goes about doing what it's all about. What is its specific business model? Serving the education market, serving uh, hospitality and leisure in location-based entertainment, theme parks, serving digital place, serving education, serving the toy market. Those are very different business models under the same brand, and they go about doing their own thing, not caring about the rest of the ecosystem. But in reality, like in a real biological ecosystem, they do produce synergies because one is feeding off the other. So when we are successful in the toy business, the theme park business will be doing better. The theme park business is brilliant in building connectivity in families and a very social playing experience together. A day the family will remember for years they spent together in a playful environment. That's different than playing with one set of Lego toys at home. So in that way, they offer complementarities, but we're not forcing them to complement each other. We're just letting them do that by really fulfilling their own mission. So it's quite a different philosophy of building a business system. So this means that from this point of view, they cannot be negative externalities between them. They can only be positive externalities. Well, sometimes there are negative externalities because one makes a choice that's not perhaps ideal. Right. That could be, uh, you know, how you relate to Facebook or how you collaborate with Disney in certain areas. So there's definitely sometimes issues, and those will be what I will call the thin, thin slice of the thousands of decisions that get made within those organizations. There are very, very few decisions that have to pop up at an owner or a board level and require just a little bit of alignment and agreement because, you know, that has to happen. But it is also a notion that says there is such a thing as over-collaboration and over-synchronization of efforts because it is very costly to coordinate, monitor, and control. This is a system that's really based on empowering and saying, go off and do your own thing. And, you know, 99% of the time, you don't need to think about the other areas. You'll be great. And by the way, from an owner angle, we're okay that sometimes you do create negative externalities because, you know, the cost of weeding them out would stifle into bureaucracy, over-coordination, executive management. Uh, so in a way, it's a very loosely coupled conglomerate that is based on the same legal philosophy and idea and brand. So I was about to ask you, but there's got to be an underlying legal philosophy and brand. There and, is, okay. yes. And so the common platform is captured in just one page, which we call the legal idea paper, which expresses the owner family's philosophy of how to be an owner and what the essence of the legal brand is really all about. And everybody, of course, need to relate to that. And there is a certain common cultural traits in how you react in difficult situations where your values come out. And there's a certain sense of how we behave towards society. And you know, our philosophy of, is of always being the best choice, not necessarily the least expensive choice. So we are quality distinction. So there are things that come with that on a common brand platform. We talk about that it's important to really play well, it's important to learn well from learning through play, and ultimately that allows people to live a better life because they've really grown and developed through learning through play. So there are a few non-negotiables, but I guess they are non-negotiables. They are non-negotiables and there are very, very few of them because I believe that that's 
very important. And it, it is based on experience that I had and our owners had during the difficult years, which was I came back every year and said, this happened a lot in this organization that I never asked for. And in the beginning, I thought it was because I was insufficient, naive, and was not a good leader. But of course, it was a reflection on taking over at a time where clearly I was not mature enough for the role. So I relied on other people making me better. But for me, that turned into a life lesson that the job of management is not to describe everything and then ensure people do exactly what they were told to do. You want people to do a lot more than they're told to do. Doing what you're told to do is level one. Level five is surprise me. Do something that I'd never expected you to do. However, you have to somehow illustrate what that is. And therefore, you have to be able to tell in a set of principles, but also in your storytelling, you share, wow, that really impressed me. Or when I heard that, I felt a pain in my stomach or in my heart because that can't be what we're all about. Or this is great. So people can navigate what feels like the right surprise to to bring to the leadership. Now, we're recording this interview in early September 2020, which means that, that it's become quite clear to all of us that the COVID-19 crisis is going to be with us for another six to hopefully not more than 18 months, but is, is definitely more than a, a passing period. Nevertheless, the first half of the year was very difficult for some companies. Apparently, I'm not going to say less difficult for Lego because it was difficult for Lego, sure. but you guys did remarkably well during H1. Um, are there one or two or three things that, that, that you said, wow, we really did this very, very well, that somehow ended up contributing to this remarkably successful period in the first half of the year? So, so first, I'd say across our ecosystem, we've seen ups and downs. Uh, there are businesses such as location-based entertainment that obviously have had been closed. Also, our education business has been struggling. Schools have been closed. The, the very core in, in, the, in the toy business, the play material business, has done remarkably well. And I think all of them have shared a set of principles of putting people first, staff and customers, taking care of safety first and all, and then securing business continuity. And there, I think we've seen the benefit of not what has been done over the last three to six months, but what has been done over long periods of time in terms of building resilience. And building resilience is something that is a cultural artifact, the, the, the capacity to deal with unanticipated events relatively quickly, the flexibility to reset and adjust. and. The Lego Group has been extraordinary in its capacity to replan the year and engage its audience through digital means such as the Let's Build Together campaign that had more than 80 million unique users. So really fast reconfiguration of how to run the business model and a lot of product launches being moved around to be able to still keep uh, sales at a very uh, impressive level. I'm very impressed with uh, how the team has done. Also from a supply and manufacturing perspective, shifting things around. So what I'm hearing from you is, is A, a very sustained level of innovation, uh, and B, a very sustained level of resilience and ability to, to roll with the punches and reconfigure. And one of the things I spoke a lot to our organization about over the past uh, almost 20 years is what I call the mentality of, of resilience. We have a set of principles we've discussed. And one of the key elements of that, and I've used that a lot when things went well, I said, 
when things are going well, I'll ask in the room, are we responsible for this? Everybody raises their hand and say, yes, of course. I said, when we have a bad year, I'd like to see the same reaction. Because I don't think we are 100% responsible for the business outcomes. There's some luck. You know, even this year, uh, we've seen the biggest growth that I've seen, I think, in my 20 years in the toys business of the underlying toy market, probably because families spend time at home. Now, the Lego Group has vastly outperformed that growth, and I'm sure will continue to do so as it has done. Uh, but, you know, you need to calibrate your outcomes to underlying factors. Obviously, if you're in the oil business, you can be hugely successful because there's an underlying oil price that really determines outcomes. I've always said to our organization, I think we're probably 80 to 90% responsible for our outcomes. The rest is external factors. So that means we have a big responsibility. We're not protected by any structural barriers. It's an open global market. It's very innovation driven. So we can't really blame anybody but ourselves. And we should celebrate that when things are going well. Or we should also remember when things are not going so well, there's only one person who can be blamed for that. And that is ourselves inside the company. Now, on top of that, we're 100% accountable for whatever happens. So when the shit hits the fan, it may be my fault, it may be somebody outside, outside the company, it doesn't matter. You know, we have to relate to that's now the situation. And a final very important element has been, as we went through our near-death situation now uh, almost uh, more than 15 years ago, we decided we want to build a financial reserve. So this year, we've, of course, from the owner family side, benefited from having all the excess liquidity that was needed to have a calm mind in the midst of a storm. And that's a principle we will always stay with, that we have the reserves to go through because things will go up and down through generations. So be prepared. Be prepared means uh, accumulate reserves during good times yes. uh, because you know that at some point you'll have to draw upon them. Yeah. And another aspect is focus less on whose fault is it yeah. and, uh, uh, and, and not only whose fault is it between you and me, but also between the environment and me and focus more on, okay, and what do we do about it? Exactly, exactly. Not easy to do. I mean, it sounds easy. It's really easy it, it to say. Took, it took me two years to get there. I, I spoke to an executive coach for two years and he always asked me the same question. He said, so what went wrong and why do you exist? And two years in, my answer to what went wrong was poor management. And he said, drink your tea. You never need to come back again. You're done now. And, you know, before that, I spoke about the dollar, the very unsporty competition, mistakes were made by other people. I had no ownership of the problem. But from that moment on, he said, you now will for always own the problem, regardless of who caused it. You're free to go. You're ready. And I think that's a very important insight for, for, for all of us. That, and it actually means when also when things are going well, you have the humbleness to also say, this was also caused by other people, my dear colleagues or some other circumstance. You're never boosting yourself so you become arrogant and think that you cause everything good because that also allows you that when things are not going so well, to know that you have ownership, uh, but you know you have it in a way where you know, of course, there are circumstances that can hit you. As I'm listening to you, I'm making a mental connection to two different moments where I, I was fortunate to hear Jack Ma speak in a public setting. And on both occasions, he emphasized this notion of don't complain, don't bitch about stuff, 
just ask yourself, what is the issue? What can I do productively? What, what, what would be a, a productive way of contributing positively to this situation? And it's, it's, it's interesting because it is indeed something that leaders can do, but they have to kind of force themselves to say, don't complain. And so what are you going to do about it? It is what it is. I think the other thing I really learned, which took me a long time to understand, is that a crisis often starts many years before we call it a crisis. So, of course, we know this generally from the financial crisis of 08. It, it didn't start in 08. It started on a decade-long build-up of unsustainable lending, where the credit really wasn't worth what we said. Now, if you look at a company, you will find things that are actually very early signals that a crisis is building up. But if you are somehow successful company, you can live with that weakness for a long time until suddenly it explodes in your hands. And then you say, oh, we didn't know, and it's a crisis, and there was no way we could have known that. Yes, there was a way we could have known that. And similarly, you have to say about COVID, you could say there's no way we could have known that. Well, I will say, I've been on the board of companies where we looked at, including my own, obviously, we looked at what happened in China and said, oh, that's a shame for China. You know, carry on in the rest of the world. We should have thought about it. We should have thought about it not this year. We should have thought about it 10 years ago with SARS and MERS. We should have built it into our risk management and said, you know, pandemics, Bill Gates said it five years ago. Exactly. It's a huge risk. We, we should have said there are seeds of pandemics. Let's invest a little bit in being ready for that. I think there's, there's been a very nice book on black swans a few years ago. And, and unfortunately, that term has now been, I think, very, very much abused. And yes. everybody calls yeah. black swans yeah. disastrous events. But black swans were meant to be disastrous events that are impossible to foresee. Yes. Uh, as, as, as sad as it is, COVID-19 is, was not impossible to foresee. Again, people like Bill Gates have been warning for years. Let me ask you two Two uh, uh, larger or, uh, and more strategic questions. First, uh, if you reflect on the last 20 years, the world is, is a different place, mm -hmm. obviously. Um, what has changed, and in particular, what has changed from a top management senior leadership point of view? How is, how is the world of a senior leader different today than it was when you, when you became the CEO of Lego? So a couple of years ago, my daughter asked me, because I turned 50, and she said, how many people lived on the planet when you were born? I was shocked to figure out only half of today's population was on the planet when I was born. And I think that things that have changed the most over the last 20 years are the things we don't see because they're underlying and they're very long term. So I would call out, of course, population growth and with that climate change as an issue. When I was a young man, we spoke about climate change. But now we've lost the opportunity almost to address it. Back then we spoke about the Rio Accord. Now we're up to Paris Accord and it's become a much more pressing issue. Uh, and that is a shift in the way we think business today from 20 years ago. The other element I would call out is globalization. Again, when I was a young man, we spoke about Japan and China as economic superpowers. Today, it's not worthwhile discussing whether China will be the world's economic superpower. It's a fact. And if we ignore it, just like if we ignore climate change, what are we doing? You know, so, so that is something that cannot be ignored. 
back then it was something we could talk about if we like to and pay some attention to. And the third one I would say is the type of technology we use in business. So we've been through the era of transistors and microprocessors we knew is the IBM era and then we went through the, the Microsoft Intel era with the PC client and then we went into the web with the Googles of the world. We are now in an age of AI and a, a third generation of, of internet and we know it's there and it's going to be there the next 10 years and we need to relate to that and that drives very different business models and disruptive change. So I think in a simple way, technology, climate change slash demographics, and, and of course the emergence of Asia, and in particular China as a world power, is quite simply something every leader today simply cannot ignore and back then could talk about occasionally. You mentioned climate change. Of course, uh, a lot of what Lego does is, is made of plastics. Um, and Tell us a little bit how, how the, the, the toy part of the group, but more generally the group, thinks about the challenges and opportunities associated with sustainability. So the problem of the environmental sort can for us be sorted into three buckets. One is sustainable production and supply chain. The second one is uh, sustainable products, products that are designed for end of life and produced from sustainable materials. And the third element is really circular business models where the product never becomes waste and is in an eternal recycling. And we're pretty far on establishing a sustainable su supply chain with very little waste and renewable sources of energy, in particular what's in our own scope and because we are 80-90% manufacturing in-house, we can really work on that. We have a bigger job to be done on the full scope three of the global supply chain and that brings us into the product side where we are currently into, uh, facing in uh, bio-based PE, so sustainable types of plastics, but are far from our ambition in, in 10 years from now, our stated ambition is to be much more based on, on sustainable sources of supply, and that will really address that second problem. Then there's the third problem of a more circular business model. And on that one, it's still a very open quest, and I think will be a longer journey to really get to that place where that can be possible. But our view is that this is something that needs to be solved in our generation. Uh, the world needs sustainable uh, climate solutions. And so work in progress, but with a strong determination to be part of the solution. Absolutely. And I think from the, the owner family perspective, obviously there's a price to be paid for this, mm -hmm. but we're already paying the price, although we're just not paying it in cash yet. And we might as well recognize that there is an additional cost to be paid to really be of ensuring that we are net positive for the world at large, also on the climate impact. And it's not an impossible price to pay, but it also requires a lot of innovation. And we're very encouraged by the innovation we have already seen, but it takes a forward-looking and long-term perspective to invest behind it. Companies need to keep reinventing themselves, and particularly in, in the world we live in. And of course, Lego, the Lego Group, and the Christiansen family has, has sponsored a chair at IMD, uh, and that chair is currently held by Professor Howard Yu. And, and Howard wrote a book uh, last year referring to thriving in a world where everything can be copied. And, and of course, the Lego brick has been copied, and a lot of your ideas over the years has been, have been copied. 
How, how does the group keep reinventing itself? Yeah, and Howard's work is so meaningful and so important for so many companies. And I think the Lego brick is a great icon of that because anybody could 3D scan the brick and produce it tomorrow. But it's a, about a lot more than the brick. And I would say sort of three things about that. One is having a deep purpose. So the Lego brick is not just about toying around with Lego bricks. It is about creatively expressing your ideas, using your imagination, and thereby learning through play. So there's a much deeper meaning and functional benefit from the product than just the physical. And that's harder to copy, and that requires careful design thinking to deliver that experience to the end consumer. But it requires you reminding everybody that it is. Uh, that it, that's what it's about. Right. Both the consumer and the organization, and your of course. And then I say there are two other things which I'd refer to as operating model and marketing value chain, if you like. So what's really hard to copy is that we make almost 100 billion Lego elements a year, run them in a complex global supply chain. We know through technology where every single element is and how does inventories, designs, color variations, shape variations get produced in the right order the right quantity at the optimal cost and are ready at 5 p.m. at Walmart's DC in Arkansas. That, that's a very complex problem to solve and really hard to copy. And similarly, on the marketing side, it's not just making bricks, it's making themes that children are into, it's making short-form content, small TV series, it's being one of the most watched brands on YouTube, it's producing Lego movies, it's going into theme parks. So you have quite a complex marketing value chain that you orchestrate and execute on a global scale such that when you launch Lego Friends that I spoke about earlier in this conversation, you do it globally, same time in Beijing, in Berlin, in Boston, supported by fantastic marketing assets and a really reactive global supply chain that can scale up and down depending on where the demand is going. So one aspect, the supply chain is kind of a barrier to entry. Hey, if you want to mm -hmm you want to be catching up with us, you're going to have to learn to do this, and that will take years. Mm. Another aspect is constantly staying one step ahead by having new ideas. And then I, I guess another one is and leverage our scale and global exactly. footprint. Yes, exactly. And, and really understand that marketing is also a sort of, I, I hate to call it a supply chain, but it is a very organized undertaking, and it's no mistake when the Lego group today and the team there being so successful, they are the masterminds of product innovation, product management, and marketing management, marketing development. They do an extraordinary job in that space. And that is a very complex undertaking and really hard from somebody from the outside saying, oh, I can make Lego bricks too, to actually scale it up to that. Last question. If you look back to uh, Jürgen of 20 years ago and the person and the leader that you are today. Can you identify two or three things that are, that are substantially different? And, and how, how much was this a conscious, deliberate process versus something that just happened? Well, it has for my sake, because I've been in, at the top position for so long, it's felt like growing up in public. So I've made some real mistakes that have been very public because everybody could see it. And, and so it, it has been through pressures from inside and outside and, and the natural consequence of my own development. So I, I would call out a few things. I, I was, of course, in my early years, very focused on getting things done. Uh, execution and not so much small talk, you know, just we need to deliver results, we're in a turnaround. And that's what leadership also is, it's the capacity to focus and execute. I was also 
very curious and interested in what the media would say and oh maybe IMD would do a business case today I shy away I, I rarely do interviews like this I really don't care what people write I actually don't read what they write about me because you know I've been in this for 20 years and I know half of it is nonsense and either taking me too high or too far down it's not me I don't recognize myself in that so I've sort of stopped uh, really caring about uh, any external uh, rights and, and, and attention. So a more internal... Much more, I'm much more focused focus. on doing something that really is fulfilling to myself. I'm much more focused on the relationships to the key people around me uh, rather than the big uh, context. And then I'm probably a lot more strategic and reflective than in the moment execution, getting things done. And that, of course, corresponds with being in an owner sort of situation and being a chairman that I should really stay away from interfering in what happens. And so what has happened the last six months in the legal group is in not at all something I take any credit from because I've been relatively distanced to that. But I take some pride in perhaps having sown a few seeds over 20 years that hopefully was in the mix of, of things going well. And that's very, very different from the me and myself from 20 years ago. It's quite inspiring and frankly quite remarkable to have been able to watch you over the years and, and, and indeed what you have accomplished, of course, with your leadership teams, but also the personal journey that you've gone through. And you, you describe this journey in a very humble and matter-of-fact way, but I think all of the folks who are, who are listening to us and are watching us will, will be able to understand the enormous challenge that this must have represented over the years and the work that you did on yourself. So thank you very much, Jürgen, and we look forward to continuing to interact with you and with the group for many years. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. To hear more such interviews as soon as they come out, click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this. You can also find a range of forward-thinking analyses, business intelligence and insights in our new magazine and content ecosystem called I by IMD. You will be able to register by clicking in the link that appears in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for listening and until next time.